Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Leroy Smith to discuss his book, Nearly Nuclear, A Mismanaged Energy Transition. Thanks for tuning in. When Consumers Power planned to build a nuclear power plant in Midland, Michigan in 1967, it promised to free Michigan residents from expensive, dirty, coal-fired electricity and to keep Dow Chemical operating in the state. But before the plan could be completed, the facility was called an engineering nightmare, a financial disaster, a construction boondoggle, a political headache, and a regulatory muddle. Most locals had welcomed nuclear power eagerly. Why then, after almost 20 years and billions of dollars, did this promise of a high-tech, coal-free, prosperous future fail? And what lessons does its failure offer today as Americans try to develop a clean energy economy based on renewable power? To answer these questions, energy consultant and author Leroy Smith carefully traces the design and construction decisions made by Consumers Power including its choice of reactor and its hiring of the Bechtel Corporation to manage the project. He also details the rapidly changing regulatory requirements and growing public concern about the environmental risks of nuclear power generation. An examination of both the challenges and importance of renewable energy, this book will be of value to anyone interested in grappling with the complexities of our ongoing efforts to eliminate fossil fuels in favor of clean, renewable energy. Lee Smith served in the U.S. Navy as an engineering officer and then earned a Master of Science degree in geology. After leaving graduate school, he spent his entire career in the energy industry, starting as an exploration geologist and subsequently gaining business experience serving as a corporate officer in a publicly traded company, a privately held company, and a limited partnership. Smith left his job as Vice President of Energy Supply and Marketing at Midland Cogeneration Venture in 2004 to start a consulting firm, Optimal Value Energy. He now lectures and writes on energy topics and has testified before the Michigan Public Service Commission, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and the National Energy Board since 2019, the Canadian Energy Regulator. He's written articles on hydraulic fracturing, fracking, and carbon dioxide sequestration in Michigan, and he lives in Midland with his wife, H.J. Smith. Lee, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. So we can't really tell the story of the Midland cogeneration venture without telling the story of Dow Chemical, and we can't really tell the story of Dow Chemical without a foundational understanding of the geography of mid-Michigan. I was wondering, what's so appealing about the region to one of the largest chemical producers in the world? Yes, Midland is unique in that unlike southeastern Michigan, where the auto industry got its start, Midland owes its background to a guy by the name of Herbert Henry Dow, who in in 1890 came to Midland because of two things. One, underlying Midland are brine deposits. And secondly, there was a lot of lumber waste so that he could get started on his process that he had developed to extract bromine from uh, brines. He left Midland uh, briefly uh, and went and developed another process and came back to Midland in the 1896 and uh, with a process in addition to being able to extract bromine to 
chlorine from brines. He uh, then founded the Dow Chemical Company. The Dow Chemical Company went on and got involved in all sorts of manufacturing, all sorts of chemicals, so that Midland is a unique place. And uh, thanks to Herbert Henry Dow, the company was founded here in Midland. Could you say a little bit, Lee, about the source of those brine deposits? What's the like the geological makeup of Midland like that has it like that gives it that unique character that Dow was able to exploit? Well, kind of have to talk about the geology of Michigan. All of the lower peninsula virtually is underlined by layers of sedimentary rocks. Many of them have water in them that is enriched in various chemicals, so that it's brine. And so there are a whole series of these strata that if you drill a well, you can recover brine from them. There are also, of course, under lying the lower peninsula, some uh, strata that are completely salt. But at any rate, it is a rather unique situation wherein, as I say, you can uh, drill a well and pump up brine that has, you know, various chemicals in it. And what did the extraction process look like early on? Like what were Dow's energy needs like, say, in the 19th century? And how did they meet them without like readily accessible coal or, or oil sources right there in Midland? Well, in the, in the beginning, uh, the attraction to Midland was that you had uh, waste from the lumbering that was going on. So there was basically fuel available for generation of electricity. And, and Dow's early processes used electrolysis, so, so he needed electricity. So the ability to have uh, basically free fuel was, was great when he came here and to Midland in 1890. And shortly thereafter, as he was going to get the Dow Chemical Company going, uh, he observed that there was coal being developed in the, in the area so that there would be coal available to run the uh, electric generators that he needed. In the uh, middle of Michigan, there are a number of very shallow coal deposits, and these were uh, just getting developed in the 1890s. Uh, the coal in Michigan was rather thin and uh, not extensive, so that it peaked about 1900, and uh, thereafter continued the production continued to decline and decline. So the coal didn't last that long, but it was uh, available long enough to provide a good start for the Dow Chemical Company. It's interesting that you say the coal supply started to fade early in the 20th century. And then sort of as we move into mid-century, Dow's production, I imagine, is ramping up intensely as they're involved in the war effort and all of the sort of booming industrialism of that period. How did they come about this design on trying to get a nuclear power plant in mid-Michigan to, to help sustain manufacture and to supply power elsewhere too? Uh, well, you're correct about the history there. What happened uh, as the coal, the Michigan coal played out, they did uh, at some of the time have uh, oil uh, that they used. About the time of World War II, there were several uh, oil fields discovered close to Midland, so they used that. And there are also some other small natural gas deposits that they could use. But by the time they got to the 1960s, they were relying on coal that was uh, produced in southern Ohio and bringing that to 
Midland via long trains. The trains were nothing but coal cars, and they called them unit trains. So by by 1960s, this was what they were using for power, and they had they ran their own had their own power stations where they generate electricity, and they also produce steam because steam is a critical factor in a chemical plant. It's used for all sorts of things. It's used to heat the reactor vessels to the proper temperature. In Midland, they were taking the brine and and evaporating it and producing salt right down to salt you put on the roads and so forth. So to say by the 60s, they were relying on that. The problem they had was that uh, they had several hundred million dollars of facilities and chemical manufacturing facilities in Midland. But by the 1960s, other locations like in Sarnia and in Texas and the Gulf Coast, they could manufacture steam and power that they, that they absolutely needed for their chemical operations at a lesser cost. So they really were in a bind. They didn't want to abandon all the equipment they had uh, constructed in Midland over the years. But in making chemicals, and Dow at that point in their history made what are called commodity chemicals, which are basic chemicals that can be manufactured by anybody. I mean, there's nothing special about them. And it's absolutely required that a chemical operation like Dow be able to manufacture those chemicals at the very lowest price. And these many of these commodity chemicals have a strong need for steam and electricity uh, for their manufacture. So they started trying to seek energy from elsewhere as it became more intense and they needed to bring it in from off of the local region. Didn't you report in the book that they had built a small nuclear generator there in Midland before the cogeneration venture? Well, the the purpose of that reactor that they built in in Midland and started running it in the 60s was not to generate steam or electricity. The purpose of that was, was research. It was a research reactor that produced various chemical isotopes that they used. So that wasn't uh, used for st- generation of steam electricity. However, you know, that reactor, when, they, when that went critical, started operating, they featured it on the front page of the paper in Midland. It just kind of one of those demonstrations that Midland was, was very um, keen on anything the Dow Chemical Company did and really prided themselves on the research that was done here in Midland. So that this research reactor was here, everybody uh, received that very positively. It's another indication that that Midland would be a good place if you wanted to have a couple of really big reactors to produce steam electricity. The community would would not be opposed to it. And it's not clear in my research, although I, I tried to figure out who idea it was to put the the big reactors that uh, consumers tried to complete in Midland. On one hand, it seemed perhaps like it was the president of the Dow Chemical Company at that time. On the other hand, it was possibly the guy that was running consumers at the time. The guy that was running Dow at the time was very open to all sorts of new ideas. So he could have come up with the idea and approached consumers. On the other hand, the president of consumers at that time, Jim Campbell, was a big advocate of building big nuclear plants for consumers to generate electricity. So the idea 
well, may have come from him, but however, whoever came up with it, uh, they decided that it would be a good thing to locate these reactors in Midland. And the location they picked was one right across the Tidwasee River from the Dow Chemical Complex. And the reason for that placement on the floodplain of Tidwasee was that then the steam that was going to be generated from the heat from the nuclear reactors could be piped across a bridge they built over the Tittabawassee, and it would lose a minimum amount of heat as it got to the Dow Chemical Complex. It's really interesting that the actual origin of this idea is a little bit obscure, and I think it speaks to the what becomes a decades-long boondoggle trying to figure out how to get the thing built, You know that you can't really even precisely pinpoint the origin of the idea. Nevertheless, could you tell us what was the initial proposal? Like what, you know, in their sort of ideal world when they proposed the project in the 60s, what were they hoping ultimately to build there? Well, when uh, Dow and consumers came up, whoever came up with the idea, they turned it over to Bechtel, the Bechtel company, to do some feasibility studies for them. And that took about a year for them, uh, basically 1966 into early 67 for Bechtel to complete these plans. But the the plan was that what the reactors did, of course, is they produce intense heat. Uh, They use that heat to produce steam. The steam is piped from the reactors over to a big steam turbine building where there would be two steam turbines. And uh, one of those turbines, they were going to extract some of the steam from, the plan called for them to extract steam from, and then that's the steam that would be piped across the river to uh, the Dow Chemical Company. You know, the the local paper at the time said the plant was for Dow's use. Well, yes, Dow was going to get steam and electricity from this plant, and at the projected cost, at a very competitive cost, but these reactors really were going to in addition to that need, uh, which was a really a small percentage of the total output of the plant, the reactors would produce enough electricity to serve a million of consumers' customers. So it really, this was part of the guy that was running consumers at the time, Jim Campbell's plan. And he had started with a small reactor uh, in 1960 over on the shores of Lake Michigan, the Big Rock Point reactor. Then they'd announced a reactor in southern Michigan, a Palisades reactor, and, and consumers was the, or the, the reactor that consumers is going to build in Midland was the third reactor. And actually, in 1970, they announced they were going to build an even bigger reactor over by Bay City. Uh, and so consumers had big plans, or Jim Campbell and consumers had big plans for nuclear generation. And as a matter of fact, was Campbell's plan that by, in 1970, the plan would have been that by 1980, consumers would have converted to a situation where 45% of their electrical generation would have been from nuclear power plants. This was sort of the boom time for the construction of nuclear power plants there in the 60s and 70s, as they sort of start to spring up across the U.S., Could you say a little bit about what the cultural reception was like to the idea of building these plants in Michigan? Well, you're right. In general, after the Second World War, there was a great fascination with the fact that 
you know, you could use nuclear power for peaceful purposes. And so as you got from the 50s into the 60s, there was more and more public enthusiasm, if you would, for nuclear power. And so it was in the general scheme of things, people were generally supportive of it. Midland was, I think, a special case in that the people in Midland felt that with these, with these reactors, that their jobs would be safe because the Dow Chemical Plant would have cheap power for it. And they were generally receptive to the fact that the Dow Chemical Company had developed all kinds of things as time had gone on. And they felt that this would ensure their, their employment in, in Midland and actually public surveys conducted in Midland and early 1970s showed that 80% of the people in Midland supported uh, these reactors being built in their town. And there was some activism around this too, right? But did they sense that some, there was some resistance or that they required you know, permission from Washington to get the, to get the project on its feet? So there, there was some sort of activism coming out of Midland in favor of building nuclear power plants? Yeah, well, <laughs> This effort prompted two citizen responses. On the one hand, the Chamber of Commerce in Midland got organized and they held a huge rally and you know, encouraged people to support the plant. On the other hand, very early in 1968, you know, the plant was announced in December of 1967. 1968, a, a Midland woman whose name was Mary Sinclair started speaking and writing about this safety concern she had for the Midland plant. The plant, of course, was on the floodplain of the Hitabawasi, and it was, you know, within five miles of where 30,000 people lived. And of course, right at, in the Dow plant, you had 12,000 people working there. So her writings and speeches and so forth said, you know, there's a lot of safety issues here that ought to be examined. Uh, not only did she write and speak about these safety concerns, but she organized a group that hired a lawyer, Myron Cherry, to participate in the construction permit hearings for the plant. And Cherry was quite successful in dragging those hearings out. So the construction permit was applied for in 1969, but it was not issued until the end of 1972. So there was quite a period of time there. And People in Midland were very agitated that the permit was being held up. And were the reasons for delaying the permit like general safety around nuclear power or a blend of that and the particular proposal in Midland? Yeah, there was a, a blend there. Cherry certainly did drag out the hearings, but the uh, Atomic Energy Commission, who was charged with the responsibility of safety of the plants, uh, discovered during the time that these uh, construction permit hearings were going on that they, they doubted some tests that they'd finally run, raised concerns about cooling of reactors. And so those hearings and their examination of that, one might say a little belatedly because they had approved some of these plants, tended to drag out the hearings. And, and really it was an indication of what was to come to the 
Atomic Energy Commission and after 1974, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission consistently were changing regulations as they got concerned about this thing and that thing. So the way they changed these regulations, of course, had the effect of driving the cost up reactors that were being built everywhere because the engineering work, and in some cases, things had actually been constructed and the, the regulator would change their minds so they would have to redo what they've done. Uh, one writer compared it to a ratcheting that the regulations always seem to get tougher. They, ne- they never got looser. And so this was a big problem for these plants that were under design, under construction design and also being built. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Leroy Smith, author of Nearly Nuclear, A Mismanaged Energy Transition. I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about those regulations. I mean, one thing that I find so interesting about this is that it's almost as though folks are trying to figure out, you know, what what they're trying to build, what this is going to do for them, what like the actual consequences of building it might be and regulate it in some way or other all at the same time. You say that over the period, um, you know, of that sort of 1968 and onward, they sort of ratcheted up regulation. What kinds of regulations were imposed on nuclear power plants that affected this you know, proposed construction in Midland? Well, they had to do with all sorts of things. And Midland also ran afoul, you might say, of certain standard things. For example, in 1970, they were cited for not properly pouring the cement from one of the reactor containment buildings. Uh, That was not an exotic requirement, if you would. It was just how you make sure cement uh, has the stability that it should have. They ran into problems with how reinforcing rod was being welded for the containment buildings. Here, consumers said that they were doing it correctly, but it was just the record keeping that was not what the uh, Atomic Energy Commission required. Uh, They uh, had problems with just the basic record keeping. At one point, they were thousands of forms behind on their recording of, of the quality control that they were doing. So there were all manner of different aspects, a lot of them not necessarily connected with the reactors themselves. It was just the various peripheral equipment that there were problems with. Of course, this is understandable in that with a nuclear plant, you can't have any little things because little things that are wrong, because little things can become big things that have very, very serious consequences. So they have to start by trying to control all of the little variables that you can control. Exactly. I'm trying to get a handle on the narrative here. You know, how the, you know, we get the permits, we, we get some construction underway. There's some regulatory interference. Some things have to be redone and rebuilt. How did they go about building the plant and how much construction of the sort of nuclear infrastructure actually got completed before things started to change in a whole different direction? Uh, I would say things were changing almost from the beginning. 
so that it was a continuing process of change. Of course, the most dramatic thing that happened during the construction is the accident at Three Mile Island happened. That accident in 1979, besides the normal things that you might say would come from an accident at another nuclear plant, it turned out that at Midland, they had installed the reactors that had already been put in place were the exact same uh, design as the one that had a problem at Three Mile Island. So that event at, at Three Mile Island caused all sorts of change orders that you would might say So Midland was forced to rip out all sorts of things that they'd already constructed due to Three Mile Island and the, you might say, look back at the regulations from what Three Mile Island showed uh, to be problems. So they had installed those same reactors already, but not powered them up? That's correct. As a matter of fact, the, the Midland plant, when they stopped, construction in 1984 was 85% complete, but they had not fueled it. So the, the plant was never fueled with uh, fuel rods were never added to the plant. So the Three Mile Island episode uh, ca- you know, caused another kind of reassessment. Did they intend after that to, you, know, you say construction continued until 84, they, they intended to carry on with the plan? When did things shift away from nuclear altogether and why? Well, you know, if you drop back and you look at, say, 1974, when they were uh, working on the plant, by that time, the cost had already gone up greatly. And in 1974, utilities all over the country were canceling nuclear plants because of the same things that consumers was encountering. Uh, We've talked about the regulations, but also in 74, interest rates were going up. So it was so it was just becoming very obvious that these plants were going to cost a lot more than had originally been estimated. But consumers in 1975 changed the management of you know consumers' power and uh, decided to carry on, and they carried on and they carried on. So as the costs went higher and higher. They just kept on, kept on. They did not seem to be able to to live with the fact that they might have to cancel the plant. Was there any public pressure or activist pressure that contributed to the cancellation ultimately? Well, that's a that's a difficult question to an- answer that many people ask. In 1984, they had to cancel, although they were still, you know, they remained determined to try to finish it. But in 1980, in the spring of 1984, they were bleeding money. They had, they had already invested in excess of $3 billion, an amount that was $4 billion when they canceled the plant in 84. But at any rate, in the spring of 84, they uh, sent a guy to New York to try to borrow another $500 million so they could continue construction. But we came back to Michigan and said, you know, we're not going to get any more money from Wall Street to continue this construction. So they really were forced to stop building because they just flat ran out of money. So then the question becomes, why did they really run out of money? What was the, and there were many causes for that. 
they uh, had one uh, construction problem, which was major. They discovered in 1978 that the buildings were sinking and cracking on the site. And that, in order to fix that, I estimate they probably spent $500 million, which, of course, is about twice what they said. And orig- originally, this plant was supposed to cost $267 million. And so that one construction problem of sinking and cracking cost them $500 million. There was determined environmental opposition. I talked a little earlier about Mary Sinclair. You know, she didn't, her efforts did not stop when the construction permit was issued. And her group uh, retained the lawyer, this Myron Cherry, to take the construction permit approval case all the way to the Supreme Court. They lost at the Supreme Court in 1978, but they managed to keep the issue alive all those years. So I've got to believe that it probably cost consumers more to borrow money as they were going along because there was always this uncertainty out there that that it would be finished. Environmental effort also caused the I believe caused the regulators to pay particular attention to the construction standards at Midland. Um, one of the regulators in fact said that because of the environmental opposition, they always felt like they were in a fishbowl. And so I think you can attribute some of the the problems consumers had to a very, very diligent, one might say over-diligent supervision from the, from the regulators. So it's difficult to assess how much of the money was spent because of the environmental opposition, but it certainly contributed to additional costs for the plant. So the other thing that happened is you can just look at the management of this project. And you can find several things that were done wrong by consumers. In 1970, consumers decided they would, along with stopping construction while they were waiting on the construction permit, that they would stop the engineering design work. So when they did get the permit later, they had to assemble their design team all over again and They also had to do the same thing in 1974 when basically they ran out of money at that point because they had so much else going on and the construction at at Midland uh, ground to almost zero. And then again, they had to redo all of their design work uh, when they were then able to start funding it in 1976. The other management problems, of course, were that They just never seemed to be able to coordinate with Bechtel to get a quality control uh, program that worked at the plant. In addition to all these things, their financing was a problem, which just was arranging for the money so they could continue building. Uh, Detroit Edison, another big utility in Michigan, was uh, building their Fermi II plant at about this time. And Detroit Edison got their financing lined up before they needed it. But consumers always seem to have to be going at the last minute when they needed money to try to to get some more money so they could keep construction going. So the the one sentence answer is why did they have to stop construction? Well, it spent $4 billion and it was only 85% 
done and they couldn't get any money, but then you have to go back to what were the various causes which where this uh, project went from a $267 million project to a $4 billion project. By the way, that $4 billion in 1984 would be the present value of that would be about 13 billion. So this was a huge project that just couldn't get done. It's just astonishing the the sums and the the years that went into trying to make it work. And I think about, you know, in that time, it's not as though the demand for energy in the region went down. You know, you still have Dow Chemical demanding lots of energy. You've got the population of Michigan growing and all of these kinds of things. What uh, ultimately was the fate of the cogeneration venture after they gave up on the nuclear plant? Well, the nuclear plant was all consumers' power. When consumers had to cease construction on it, all of the management left at consumers and they brought in new management. And the guy that brought in to head it up was a guy by the name of William McCormick, Bill McCormick. And his idea in order to salvage something out of that facility was to build a large natural gas-fired generating uh, plant. And his uh, efforts, along with the Dow Chemical Company, they formed the Midland Cogeneration Venture Limited Partnership. So at that point, what was going on in Midland became a project of the Midland Cogeneration Venture Limited Partnership, or MCV. It was not then a consumers project, although consumers ended up with an interest in that project because they contributed a lot of equipment and so on and so forth. But when that uh, entity was formed, as I say, then it became an MCV project. And it was converted then into a natural gas burning facility? Yeah. What, what happened is that the MCV partnership came up with 560 million and they installed 12 very large natural gas turbines. Those turbines generated electricity themselves, but they all, the waste heat from those turbines uh, was used to make steam. And that steam was piped over to use one of the steam turbines that had been put in place for the nuclear design. And also a deal was worked out where that steam was provided to Dow Chemicals so that in the end, the MCV plant produced about the same amount of electricity that the nuke plant would have produced, in addition, produced the steam that Dow had needed for their plant. So that was a, a workaround. I mean, that what happened when McCormick came in is that he they consumers looked at several options. They looked at an option of of just abandoning it. And that really, that had happened with one plant down in Indiana. They looked at the prospect of using coal to generate steam, to use the steam turbines. And that option actually was happened down with a Zimmer plant in uh, Ohio. Uh, they also looked at an option where they just kind of put the whole thing kind of in suspense and come back later and finish it. And that option was uh, actually later used by TVA with their Watts Bar 2 uh, facility. But this option of using natural gas as a way to use a bunch of the things that had been installed and then the waste heat to produce steam was was the one they selected. And, and actually, it was a unique solution that, to my knowledge, has never been done anyplace else. 
And is it still operational today? Is energy in mid-Michigan coming from this steam plant, the natural gas plant? Yeah, the success story there is it came into operation in 1990, and it's still running today. And it's you know paid a couple hundred million dollars in local taxes. It provides about 200 equivalent jobs. And as I, I said, that it, it produces about the same amount of electricity for consumers and for Dow as the original plant would have produced. And uh, just recently, uh, uh, MCB signed another contract with consumers so that consumers will get electricity from the plant through 2030. plant has also signed contracts with a chemical complex across the way, and they are continuing to supply steam to the chemical complex. So it, the facility was a success. Not a nuclear one. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you can say this. There, there, there was no... Uh, it's producing uh, electricity and steam with no uh, particulates or coal soot in the air. I mean, it's not as good as environmentalists would like. It's a low, of course, natural gas produces about half the CO2 that uh, coal does. Uh, they still think that that's not good enough, but yeah. be that as it may. Yeah, like we said, we were talking about, you know, that, that, that now it's turned into a natural gas plant, which is somewhat better than a coal burning plant. I mean, there's a lot to consider in the story in Nearly Nuclear about, you know, how these projects get started and what happens to them and how they can go horribly wrong. And it's hard not to think about the sort of position that we're in now with energy generation and the desire for sustainability and the want to try new things or to repurpose old things so that they perhaps work more environmentally friendly uh, in more environmentally friendly ways. What's your takeaway from this research when you think about, you know, sustainable energy futures and the need to kind of do the political and construction works necessary to bring them about? Well, the one thing I think of the value of reading a history like this is to recognize that energy choices are a tangled web of interest. You've got investor-owned utilities who want to make money for their shareholders and want to build generation. You've got an attorney general in Michigan, uh, and the Office of Attorney General has a long history of trying to beat down the investor utilities when they want to spend money to build things. Uh, You've got environmentalists who want the cleanest energy, and you've got business interests that want their electricity provided at the lowest cost. So this story is a story about how all of those interests came together in a particular situation. Our situation today is that and additionally complex with with people's wish to have sustainable energy. I've gotten some criticism from my book by environmentalists who say in the last chapter, I sound negative about renewable energy. Well, that was not my intent. My intent, as I tried to summarize, was to say the change that's going on to renewable energy is going to be very complicated and a lot of effort is going to have to be made to get it done, but balance all the different interests. Consumers power, which is what consumers or consumers power now calls themselves consumers energy, but they have a resource plan 
where that plan calls from going in, in 2019 when 11% of their uh, electricity came from renewables to 56% in 2040. Well, you know, that change, the only change of that type for generation that you can find is the one that they consumers power tried to do in converting to nuclear. So that's a major change that's got to be done. And that's going to involve all of these various interests. It's interesting to me to note that in the last rate case, which is where consumers goes to the Public Service Commission to charge the rates they say they need to charge and build the things they need to need to build. In the last rate case, you know, they went in and wanted to raise rates to generate a couple hundred million more. And the uh, attorney general, as, as the attorney general's office always does, went in and protested that these changes. So the, 20, the 225 million they requested, they got 27 million. Well, some of the things that got cut were the amounts that consumers wanted to spend on solar projects and the amount they intended to spend on a battery project. So yes, consumers are gonna see a smaller raise in their rates, but no, consumers, I, I've gotta say, is a little, must be a little off track with their plans to, to make the changes to renewables that they, they wanna make. So, so that's an, an example of this, this tension between the various interests that's going on. And there's another, there's another aspect that doesn't, I don't think get talked about enough. And that is that we really need more transmission available so that we can move electricity from one region to another. And that's the responsibility of a regional organization called MISO, Midwest Independent System Operator. And Although there are some plans out there, it seems like this is not moving along fast enough to get the transmission we need to move electricity around to places we need it. So that's a complexity that is going to have to be stirred into the mix as we try to go renewables. So in short, you know, there's, it's just a complicated problem that, that has a lot of moving parts. and each part is going to have to be as knowledgeable, as resourceful as they can to make it all fit together. I'm afraid having spent some time with your book and having thought about this in this conversation with you today, that it seems kind of hard to be optimistic that all of those parts and pieces are going to come together in favor of even the, what seemed to me somewhat modest sustainability goals uh, expressed by consumers' energy. What's your take? Do you think that the, a sustainable energy future is possible with this sort of existing infrastructure, or is it going to require you know, something more radical? I, I think we'll get there. Uh, at the, you know, I am basically uh, spent a career in natural gas, so some might say I'm prejudiced in this area, but I think we're going to have to keep natural gas around a little bit more than probably a lot of environmentalists would like to. But another thing that I'm pessimistic about is batteries. I just don't see the battery technology advancing fast enough to do the backup function for the grid. And 
because these battery arrays, you know, maybe two hours, maybe four hours, but then you got to recharge them. So if we want a truly reliable grid, we're going to need something. And the obvious choice for that is natural gas to just keep it around a little bit longer than some people would like to in order to provide a reliable grid. I guess in short to answer your question, yeah, I think we'll get there. It's just going to take longer. And people are going to have to be very resourceful as they try to deal with the other factions, you might say, that are that play in this in this puzzle. Well, hopefully uh, folks will be interested in checking out Nearly Nuclear to get a sense of what happens when all of those forces come together and butt up against each other and trying to accomplish some set of goals or another and can draw some of those lessons as we try to build our way toward a more sustainable energy future. I hope so. <laughs> well, Lee, it's been a real delight to talk to you today. I've learned so much about the power grid and the nuclear industry and this fascinating story about what happened when we tried to build a plant there in mid-Michigan. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Leroy Smith's Nearly Nuclear, A Mismanaged Energy Transition is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of the MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters here at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at the press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books. Books.